<laughs> there we go. How about that? Better? So now you can hear me. Hopefully that's good news. Because <laughs> I have good news to share. I have good news to share. Throughout the last three Sundays of this month, we're speaking about the worthy life. Uh, a life that is, that is worthy. Not a perfect life, not a sinless life, but a faithful life. Uh, the worthy life. And, um, and we're taking our thoughts from the book of Colossians, and specifically from Colossians chapter 1. And today we're in verses 15 through 20, as we speak about a sacrificial life. And there is one statement that seems out of place in this passage. There's one, uh, there's one part of this verse that doesn't seem to, uh, to fit uh, some of us remember the little kid's song, one of these things is not like the others, one of these things just doesn't belong. Um, shout out to my daughters who were raised in the 80s and 90s. Um, and and there, is, there is a part of this passage that doesn't make real sense, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to fit. And that statement is at the very end of the passage, but let's read it from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And all of that makes sense to us except that last heart. Him being the son of God, him being the preeminent or supreme one, him being the head of the church, all of that makes sense to us except that last part. That last part that says he did this through his blood shed on the cross. Because that seems to contradict everything that he has said so far. Everything that he has said so far is about power as we understand it. It's about might. It's about uh, being in charge, uh, being first, being preeminent and supreme. But it's this last part that brings all of that about for us. All of those things are true, whether Jesus dies on the cross or not. But the last part, the part about him being the savior of that body of which he is head, that only happens through what is stated at the very end, through his blood shed on the cross. Last week as we uh, spoke about a worthy life, I shared some thoughts from the movie Saving Private Ryan, which seems fitting around this Memorial Day weekend time, and talked about how Captain Miller, who had led the group to save, to find and bring back to safety Private Ryan, 
uh, as, as he was himself dying, told uh, Ryan, you've, you've got to earn this, earn this. And then at the scene at the end of the movie, very powerful scene with an adult, uh, grown-up, uh, Private Ryan and uh, his family, children and grandchildren all around at the cemetery there uh, in Normandy and, and asking his wife to tell him that he had been a good man, that he had lived a good life, that he was worthy. Nothing he could do to earn the sacrifices of the men and their families who saved him. But he could live a life in response to it. He could live a life that was worthy of their sacrifice, even though he could never earn or deserve it. And I shared last week that that's, that's our goal, is to live a life that is worthy. We are not going to be perfect. We're not going to be sinless. There's no way that we can earn our salvation that was paid for with the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. But we can live a life that is worthy of the gift that we have received. Well, there's one other powerful quote from Saving Private Ryan. In fact, I believe it rivals even that, that story I just told from the movie. Because in this case, it's not from Private Ryan and it's not from Captain Miller. It's from one of the, uh, the soldiers that are, that are with him in this quest to find Private Ryan and to bring him back to his mother who had lost her other sons in the war. And as Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is explaining to his squad why this is important, that we've got to go and we've got to find this boy, and, and it's our orders, and it's, we've been commanded, and, and he, his mother has lost all of, all of her other sons, and that's why we're, we've been commanded and ordered to do this. And one of the soldiers has the perfect response, and it's simply this, we've got mothers too. And to me, that line just stands out and shouts at, he's, he's right, he's right. The members of that squad who did not go home because they were killed saving Private Ryan, they had mothers too. They had fathers, they had family members who would mourn that great loss as well. And so it's fitting that on this Memorial Day weekend, we consider the sacrifices of those men and women who have paid that ultimate price and their families who paid a price as well. But I think of that quote a lot. We've got mothers too. And it reminds me that those who benefit from the sacrifices of others need to acknowledge the depth of that sacrifice and how someone else sacrificed something that they had every right to have or to continue or to do for the sake of someone else. And so a few things about these verses in Colossians 1 as we consider a sacrificial life. First of all, Jesus is the sovereign son of God and Lord of Lords. 
And we see that in these first few verses from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. The Son, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Not saying that he was the first one created, but saying what he goes on to explain. He is the preeminent one. He is the supreme one. He is over all creation because he is creator. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One of my favorite movies of all time, Joyce and I got to watch a little bit of yesterday afternoon, it's The Robe. And I realize it's Memorial Day weekend, not Easter, so I'm used to seeing it on Easter, sorry. But it's a, a great, great movie that, uh, that I watched growing up when I was a kid once a year on Easter Sunday. And it's a very powerful, uh, powerful uh, story. Uh, just to tell you how old it is, Richard Burton, a young Richard Burton, actually has the lead role. And, and as, you, as you watch this movie, there's that conflict between, that's going on inside of him trying to decide who is king of his life. Is it Caesar? Or is it Jesus? And he was the, uh, the soldier, the Roman centurion, who was the tribute, who was in charge of the battalion that actually was there on duty and had Jesus crucified. And the story goes on, and from the, the title of the movie, The Robe, it's the robe. And of course, this is all uh, extra biblical stuff, but it makes for a great movie and a great story. But the robe that Jesus was wearing that the uh, soldiers, rather than tore it, tear up, gambled for, that part is in the Bible. And it ends up in the hands of this Roman uh, tribute, played by Richard Burton. And his servant is a Greek man by the name of Demetrius, played by a very Tony Curtis-looking-like Victor Mature. And he ends up running away because of his, he's found faith in Christ, and he can't stay there any longer with the ones who put to death this innocent man. But as he goes, he takes that robe with him. So the rest of the movie kind of revolves around Richard Burton's search for sanity, because he is... He is just a mess because of everything that's happened. Well, he, he had to deal with that question. Is Jesus sovereign in my life or is someone else? And Colossians 1 puts the answer to that in a very emphatic way. Jesus is the sovereign son of God. He is the Lord of Lords. Paul makes that thought and, and continues it in verse 19 of this passage and, and also in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, as he says this, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And several scriptures that we have on our outlines bring that out. John, beginning his gospel from time of eternity, long before creation. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word was active in creation. And so He is the preeminent one over all of creation. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. And then that Word became flesh. In John chapter 14, Jesus would be talking to His apostles, and He would tell them when they ask Him, look, show us the Father, and that'll be great, good old Philip. 
And Jesus says, have I been with you so long? And you still don't get it. If you have seen me, you've what? You've seen the Father. You've seen God if you've seen me. And again, it was statements like that that caused the Jewish leaders to say blasphemy and finally find a, uh, an accusation that would stick. Because either Jesus was committing blasphemy or he really was the sovereign son of God and Lord of lords. And so today we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Today we bow down and crown him our king and our Lord. Jesus acknowledged before the religious leaders himself when he was on trial in Matthew 26 that he was the Son of God. And Paul states it again with very emphatic, powerful words in Romans 1 that he was declared with power to be the Son of God through the resurrection, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so our shepherd uh, uh, shared with us that that prayer, that thought that goes back to how our sins had been separated, had us separated from God, but that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection conquered death. As James said as we gathered around the table today, Jesus is the sovereign Son of God and Lord of Lords. Secondly, Jesus is the head of the church. He is the head of the church, and he is the only head of the church. Uh, We are one body, but many members, Scripture is prone to say, but only one head. Lots of feet, lots of hands, um, lots of eyes, lots of ears, lots of every other part, every other member of the body, but only one head. And that is Jesus Christ the Lord. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, from Colossians 1. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Just as we read from Colossians 2, everything that makes God God was contained in Jesus Christ, and so that's why he was worthy of worship, even as a man. In other instances, when Peter is, is, uh, someone is trying to worship Peter or someone is trying to worship the Apostle Paul, in those instances they say, no, 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 stop right there. Jesus never does. Why? Because he is and was the sovereign son of God and Lord of lords, and he is, Paul says, the head of the church. And we remember his words in Matthew 16, upon this rock, this rock of Peter's confession that that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, upon that rock, I will build my church. My church. It is his church. He is the head. And so as Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1 and chapter 5, he reminds them that Christ is the head of the church, his body. Jesus is the sovereign Son of God and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the head of the church. But then the statement that doesn't seem to fit. Jesus is the sacrificial Savior. If you're the preeminent one, if you're the supreme one, if you're the head of the institution, if you are the king, if you are the monarch, 
You don't sacrifice. People sacrifice to serve you. That's not the way of Christ. Verse 20 of Colossians 1, Through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so as David pointed out during our shepherd's prayer, using those great passages of scripture, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Isaiah 59 our sins have separated us from God so that as David, as he put it so well, we are quarantined from God. But it's, it's a self-quarantine because of our sins. And we had that oneness, we had that relationship with God and then we gave it up because we acted selfishly rather than sacrificially. And yet, because God so loved the world, as John 3.16 says, he gave his son to bring us back to him, to reconcile us to him. That's what that term means. It talks about parties that are at odds with each other and that are separated from each other and, and that are brought back together. That's the idea of reconciliation. And that happens because of the sacrifice of the Savior. Matthew 16 goes on in the midst of that great confession that Peter makes and Jesus' proclamation of building his church. He goes on and he says the Son of Man will be betrayed and will be denied and will be turned over to the Jews and the Romans and he will be killed. And on the third day he will rise again. Jesus says in Matthew 20, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And what he's saying there is, I didn't come to have people sacrifice for me. I came to be the sacrifice for them. Elders are told in Acts chapter 20 to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own Blood. And again, Jesus is the head of the church, but he's not just the head of the church. He is the savior of the church. Scripture tells us that it is the church that Jesus died to save. His body of which he is head. And so that great verse in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him, him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him... Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We try to, to be that on our own, and our own righteousness falls far short. But we can have that relationship restored, that reconciliation made possible through the sacrificial Savior, through the one who became sin for us, so that we might become righteous in the eyes of God. Jesus is the sovereign Son of God and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the head of the church, his body. Jesus is the sacrificial Savior. And Jesus calls me to live a sacrificial life. Boundless grace because of Calvary. His life he gave, his love outpoured. I now can live with him eternally. Jesus, my Lord, it's you I love in the first verse. 
in this verse, it's you, I, owe. A debt that can never be repaid. Something we can never deserve or earn, but something we can live a life that is done in great respect and value of that life that was given for us. A life that can be worthy of the sacrificial life that was given for us. And really that's the rest of Colossians 1 and the rest of Colossians and the rest of the New Testament. It describes this life that we as Christians live on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb. Jesus died once for all to give us this by giving himself, by living and dying that sacrificial life. But it doesn't end there. For us, that's just the beginning. For us, that's where our life in Jesus Christ starts. And now we're able to live that victorious life that we'll speak about next week simply because of the sacrificial life that Jesus lived in our behalf. And so in that passage in Matthew 16, after Jesus saying, look, what this means, me being the son of God, it means I'm giving my life. And what this means for you is that you too are to give your life. You too are to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. You too are to live the life of a servant rather than one who is being served. Matthew 20, as Christ loved us, Ephesians 5, we are to live a life of love as dearly loved children. Those great verses in 1 John 3 and 4 that talk about how because Jesus loved us, we are to love and to give to one another. Perhaps the greatest place to look at this is passage that Danny referred to as we began today from those last several chapters of the book of John before Jesus is betrayed and killed in John 13 through 17. As as he washes their feet in John 13 and John himself says Jesus knowing who he was, knowing where he had come from, knowing where he was going, took off his clothes, put a towel around him, filled a bowl of water and washed the disciples' feet. That's what it means to be the Lord. That's what it means to be the sovereign, the king of kings, the son of God. It means you serve. And how can it be any different for us? And what Jesus is saying there at the end of that passage in the middle of John 13 is that now that I have done this for you, you are to do this for one another. That leads to those great verses in John 13, verses 34 and 35. I'm giving you a new commandment that you love others the way I have loved you. Not the way they love you, not the way you would like for them to love you. Those are important parts of that. But the standard is now this, the way God, through Jesus Christ, has loved us. That means living obediently to his commandments. In John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commands. In John 15, that total expression of love that Danny referred to, to give one's life for someone else, Jesus did that for us, and now he calls on us to do that for others. John 16, Jesus says, and John 17 as well, as he prays the prayer to the Father, the hour has come. It's time. It's time. The Son of Man will be betrayed. And what he prays in that instance is for the Father to carry that to completion. 
carry that out. But he tells us that it's not going to be any different for us, that people are going to think they're doing what God wants them to do by opposing us, by making our lives difficult, by causing us to suffer, by causing us to sacrifice. You know, as I was working on this series and I was considering what the title should be. I had a worthy life first, first of all, and introducing this, and next week a victorious life. That, you know, those titles came really easy, but this one I struggled with. What should I call this sermon? Should I call it a sacrificial life or an unselfish life? That, that was my idea first, an unselfish life. And as I continued to think about that, I asked myself, well, Bill, what about you? Do you act unselfishly? And a lot of the times I do. I, I think a lot of us do. I think some of it is related to our personality or, or to our circumstances. But as we consider that question, what about a sacrificial life? Do I live a sacrificial life? Do I actually give things up? Or am I just unselfish in ways that I'm fine with? that don't really bother me, that don't really cause me to do something I really would rather not do or to not do something that I really want to do. You see, sacrifice takes unselfishness to a different level. And I have to tell you, I'm not sure how many times I actually do sacrifice. How often I do give something up. We're reminded of the the times of this COVID-19 pandemic. And I can tell you with great assurance and honesty, I live and love and work with a church full of people who do exactly that, who sacrifice, who give things up so that they can serve other people, whether it's their time, their energy, their money, their resources, their gifts. They gladly give them up for the sake of others. And I think over these last few months, I've seen that in a very powerful way. Each week as our ministers call throughout every family in the congregation as best we can, we hear that same call over and over again. Bill, is there anybody that needs anything? Please call me. Is there anybody that can't find anything? Please call me. I've had a few people say, Bill, look, if there's anybody that's lost their jobs in the midst of all of this and they're having a tough time, let me know. God continues to bless me and and I want to help. I don't want them to know where the help comes from, but I want to help. We're around people like that. They are in our midst. Why? Because Jesus calls us to live that way. Jesus calls me to live. A sacrificial life. And so we do that with hope, and we do that with promise, and we do that with joy. Thankful, with gratitude to do that. Jesus calls me to live an unselfish, sacrificial life. And it is precisely the sacrifice of Jesus and our own sacrifice that empowers us to live the victorious life. And the rest of the world may may not get that because that's not what they would define that as. They would define that as you doing exactly what you want all the time. You not doing anything you don't want to do all the time. That's how the world views that 
victorious life, not the way of the cross. Not the way of Christ and not the way of his church. We live a sacrificial life. And it is the sacrificial life of Jesus that enables me to live, to truly live. Not the way the world lives on the surface, happy and joyful so long as everything's going okay. But the life that comes only through Jesus Christ that says there's a lot of good things that are going to happen ahead of us. There's a lot of bad things that are going to happen ahead of us. Either way, we live because of the sacrifice of Christ. And because of that sacrifice of Jesus, we too live the sacrificial life. So David is about to lead us in a prayer song. And if you need to respond, then we encourage you to do that. But here is that prayer, in my life, Lord, be glorified. In my song, Lord, you be glorified. In your church, Lord, be glorified today. Let's stand as we sing.